Hey everyone, welcome to Pocket Size Pathophys, a podcast from theparamedictute.com. Today, we're going to discuss asthma. Let's start by defining asthma. So what is it? It's a chronic airway condition that can cause acute episodes of airflow obstruction that will lead to severe shortness of breath and sometimes acute life threat. When I say asthma is a chronic condition, what I mean is that people live with it for their entire lives, but that doesn't mean that they are chronically short of breath or anything like that. Actually, for the most part, they have pretty normal respiratory function and are able to go about their day as per normal. But when someone with asthma is exposed to certain triggers, it can cause this acute exacerbation of their condition. And that's when the problem really starts. So the kind of triggers that cause these exacerbations can be split into two types. There's the intrinsic type, which is the most prevalent amongst the population, most common that you will see. And this is an immune-mediated response. So uh, someone breathes in something that the body doesn't like, such as pollen or dust mites or something like that. And the body reacts by, you know, triggering off the immune system and we get the problems that arise from asthma. Extrinsic factors are another group of factors that I probably won't discuss that much in this uh, episode. Uh, But these are things like exercise, exposure to cold air, and certain medications like aspirin is the big one that can cause it. So exposure to any of those can actually trigger off an asthma event as well. All right, so let's get into the nitty gritty. What causes the obstruction? When someone's particularly sensitive to these intrinsic factors, so the pollen, dust mites, that kind of thing, when those substances are breathed in, the immune system will cause a chain reaction that will result in degranulation of mast cells via IgE antibodies. The chemicals that are dumped by the mast cells, such as histamine, leukotrienes, there are some interleukins in there, cause three things to happen that will then promote the airway obstruction. The first thing that causes airway obstruction is mucus plugging. In response to one of these inhaled allergens, the body promotes an increase of mucus production. Mucus is our friend normally, right? It traps bugs, it traps foreign bodies, and then it helps us clear them out of our airways. But in this case, we have a hypersecretion of mucus. There's too much being formed and it's too thick. And basically that thick mucus sits in the airways and clogs up the airways, just glugs it up and basically prevents any sort of laminar fluid airflow. The second issue that arises is that we have an inflammation of the mucosal and the submucosal layers of the airways. These are sort of the areas that basically line the airway as as air passes through it. The chemical mediators that are released will promote vasodilation just locally in the airways. This allows a fluid shift to occur from the uh, blood vessels into the tissue. It basically accumulates in the tissue and causes that swelling or that edema. The swelling of these areas impinges into the lumen of the airway and, and closes it up, makes it more narrow. So if we add that to airways that are already clogged up with mucus, we're already starting to narrow the airway quite a bit and impinge on airflow. The third factor, and arguably the most important to us because it's the one that we can reverse, is bronchoconstriction. So the release of histamine, leukotrienes, and certain interleukins can cause the smooth muscle of the airways to contract. Contraction of these airways causes a constriction of the bronchioles or bronchoconstriction, which adds to the narrowing of the airways. So all three of these guys together provide the perfect storm to allow for airflow obstruction. Okay, so before we continue, I think this is a good point to review some of the normal mechanics of breathing. Inspiration, so breathing in, is an active process. It's something that requires energy and the contraction of muscles, so your intercostal muscles, your diaphragm, etc., to actually pull your ribs sort of up and out and to flatten your diaphragm down to increase the volume within the chest cavity and allow air to come in. 
On the other hand, expiration, so breathing out, is a passive process. We basically just relax our muscles, we don't use any ATP, and we allow our chest wall and diaphragm to sort of return back to resting position, and that reduces the volume within the chest cavity and forces air out as we breathe out. So why is this important for asthmatics? Okay, well, the first thing I want to talk about is I want to try and explain some of the signs that we see with asthmatic patients. So when you hear asthma, one of the first things you think of is wheeze, right? It's a sound that you hear when you listen to a chest and you hear sort of like a whistling sound. Well, that whistling sound is actually turbulent airflow. When air particles bang along the narrow airways and bang along sort of the mucus plugs and that kind of thing, it creates turbulence in that airway and that presents to us as a wheeze or a whistling sound. Now, what's really important to remember, at least in the initial stages of asthma, is that the wheeze will really only present in the expiratory phase of breathing. Why is that? Okay, so remember that inspiration is active. We're pulling these airways open. We're using energy. And as we pull the airways open, we're actually widening that lumen, right? And we're allowing air to flow through into the lungs pretty much as normal, okay? That's really important because we have a large volume of air coming in. We have a normal pressure of oxygen coming in. And so patients will tend to be well oxygenated. So if you put a SpO2 onto a patient with asthma, you'll probably get normal oxygen saturations. Where the problem really lies is on expiration. When we relax, we let everything go. And that airway suddenly collapses back in on itself and narrows that lumen again. That narrow lumen will then cause the airflow to be turbulent, creating a wheeze. This also helps us to identify that if you hear an inspiratory and an expiratory wheeze, that inspiratory wheeze is telling us that even with the active process of inspiration, we can't pull the airways open enough to prevent turbulent airflow. That's a patient who is quite progressing their disease and is going to become quite critical very quickly. So we need to act on that. So remember, expiratory wheeze without an inspiratory wheeze is how it'll start. And if there's an expiratory wheeze plus an inspiratory wheeze, do something about it quickly. Right, so the other thing I want to discuss about the turbulent airflow is that while it makes that noise, it also slows down the airflow. So the rate at which we breathe air in is much faster than the rate at which we breathe air out. This means that as we breathe out, we're unable to expel all the air in our lungs before we have to take another breath in. And this eventually leads to a buildup of air in our lungs. Now the body tries to compensate for this by prolonging the expiratory phase. So the body recognizes that you have an obstruction in your lungs, it's really smart, and it goes, hey, I need to allow a longer amount of time to breathe air out to try and get as much air out as possible before I have to take another breath in. And this leads us to another sort of telltale sign of asthma, which is a prolonged expiratory phase. So on auscultation of the chest, you should hear an expiratory wheeze with a prolonged expiratory phase. So why is it so important to get all this air out? Well, as I said, we're going to have this increasing, increasing, increasing volume of air in our lungs, causing a hyperinflation of the lungs. There are two major issues that stand out here. The first issue I want to talk about is a buildup of carbon dioxide. So remember that breathing out is just as important as breathing in, because while we're breathing in oxygen, which fuels us, we have to breathe out carbon dioxide, which is a metabolic waste product, right? We, we want to get rid of it. It doesn't, doesn't belong in our body. So if carbon dioxide builds up in our lungs, the pressure of carbon dioxide in our blood is going to increase as well. And we're going to have a state of hypercapnia or high carbon dioxide levels. Hypercapnia is pretty bad. So high carbon dioxide levels can alter brain function and cause an altered mentation or altered conscious state. This will then go on to impair your respiratory drive and respiratory rhythm and that kind of thing, which will then exacerbate on top of the current respiratory distress. On top of that, a high partial pressure of carbon dioxide in your blood will actually make your blood acidotic. Acidosis, or respiratory acidosis in this case, can also alter mentation and 
you know, do a whole host of other things as well that are pretty bad for the body. As you can see, it'll compound and compound and compound and make our patient sicker quicker. This also leads me to another sign that we will see. If you have someone who is asthmatic and is now autoconscious state and you started bagging them, what you'll notice is that they will have extremely high end tidal carbon dioxide levels. Normal levels being between 35 and 45, you'll see levels in the 80s plus, sometimes 100, 110, 120. The second major issue of gas trapping that I want to talk about is actually a really, really big one. So the actual physical trapped gas in the lungs causes an increased intrathoracic pressure, so an increased pressure within the thoracic cavity, the, your chest cavity, which then puts pressure on all of the organs within that cavity. In particular, the important one to remember is the inferior vena cava. It's the vein that brings blood back to the heart from systemic circulation. So impinging and including the vena cava is going to cause a reduction in the blood returning to the heart. This is called venous return. So we have a reduced venous return. Reducing venous return is going to reduce preload. That's going to reduce stroke volume, cardiac output, and reducing cardiac output is going to reduce blood pressure. And this brings us to some more signs. In the later stages, like these are end stage asthma uh, exacerbations, you may see a hypotension, so a low blood pressure, and what's called a compensatory tachycardia, where the patient's heart rate will go up to try to compensate for the low blood pressure. These are all really important signs to keep an eye on. It's not just the respirate that you've got to watch, you have to watch the blood pressure and heart rate as well. Finally, I mentioned the definition that there is an acute life threat. When the bronchospasm and the mucus plugging and mucosal edema become so severe that they actually completely occlude airways, we have no airflow and no delivery of oxygen. This will result in respiratory arrest. Finally, severe occlusion of the inferior vena cava can reduce venous return so much that it could cause a cardiac arrest. All right, guys, that's a wrap on the basic pathophysiology and progression of asthma. You can put that one in your pocket. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you guys have got something out of it and I hope it's helped you guys in your study and I'll see you guys in the next pathophys breakdown.